You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. It's good to have you here. I've got an episode today that I'm really excited to share with you. So for this episode, I wanted to delve into dropshipping. It's a topic that's going to come up a lot. It's very important to our business here at Debutify, and it's very important to business at large. Uh, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating form of operation that defies the conventional business formula. That being, you buy the product at cost, you sell the product at markup based off of all of your expenses, including overhead, staffing, security, and then of course a profit margin that you can be happy with, and then repeat if you're lucky. Now, chances are we've all worked in a place of business that used a conventional operation, and of course there's plenty of businesses that still are. I certainly have, and I've seen what it takes to make this work, and it's not easy. It's not easy for the business owner, it's not easy for the staff, and a lot of times it's not easy for the customer either. And a lot of it has, has to do with pressure. So uh, before we get into the origins, I do want to give you a little bit of a backstory and some of the experiences that I've had. When I worked at a grocery store, 90% of the product was on a time limit. They had to research what products would sell while also looking for new ideas that could be a hit. With big box retailers like Walmart moving into grocery, uh, my store in turn had to look for other products that could entice shoppers to go there instead, like clothes and seasonal apparatus, and uh, I pitched a video game section and they didn't take. Or maybe they did, I haven't been back in quite a few years. Then a little later down the line, I worked at a boutique retail store, which sold watches and apparel. And every day, I was assigned a target amount of money I personally had to make. To just give you like a, a quick sense of what that means is the most common seller were watches, and watches would be around $120 to $150. So that means I had to sell, let's say, six or seven to uh, get past that point. And also, we weren't on commission. Our incentive to sell was more hours. And a lot of this comes down to luck. A lot of it comes down to timing, standing on the left side of the store instead of the right side of the store at the, at the right time. Uh, there's this one instance where uh, a customer walks in, I greet them, I try to uh, secure myself as a person that's going to be connected business with them. And then I look away and then somebody else takes over and made $1,000 in sales and then ended up being a key holder. So <laughs> yeah. Now, the business needed the sales to make a profit. I don't have any issue with that. But what I did have an issue with was the way it pitted salespeople against each other. Uh, I'm not against competition. It's one thing to compete with other stores and other brands, uh, and it's fun. And it's also fun to compete with other stores within our company to see who can come out on top in each quarter or during the Christmas season, let's say. But I had an issue with going head-to-head -head with people on the floor. It brews resentment, and it's hard not to let that show. In another job that I had of, with a similar product, 
we were all on personal commission and we all had an agreement to try to uh, make sure each person was getting their own um their own cut of the pie that day so if i had the first sale i would back off and do some of the more um cleaning tasks and i was about to say administrative tasks but i don't know if i did anything administrative and then the other person would step forward the difference was because we didn't have this personal goal that we had to meet that day, we were all okay with making sure that whatever money was made that day was uh, split amongst all of us. We had a lot that we can count on. We can count on Christmas and Valentine's to drive traffic. But the larger trends were out of our hands, and we had to adapt or lose business. And by that, I mean fashion trends and seasonal trends. Ironically, the products there had an expiry date, uh, but instead of being thrown out, they were sent to an outlet, where customers could pick up last season's good on the cheap. Uh, this meant additional overhead, but it was necessary to minimize losses. Sometime after that, I worked at a costume shop, and every day was a battle. Halloween, which is the Christmas for weirdos like me, uh, helped drive traffic, but those sales weren't to... Add frosting on the cake, they were to ensure our survival. Uh, each individual staff member had to balance a lot of tasks each day, and all the while servicing customers, which is a variable because you can have a lot of customers come in, or you can have one customer who needs a lot of time. So it was a difficult balance. Trying to make sure customers have a good experience, but also getting it all done in the day was not easy, and it made every day a different challenge. Um, having all the product in stock and there in the store helped make the store look the part, and it encouraged inspiration. Um, but as with food and apparel, everything was on a time limit. For instance, at this point, I feel like a lot of the people who were planning on going as Daenerys Targaryen may have changed their minds. And as popular as Game of Thrones was, nobody could see the story coming because the, the book equivalent hadn't even come out at that point. The value of the product was outside of management's hands, and it was in the hands of culture. So research can only predict so much. Uh, before joining the ranks here at Debutify, my previous sales job involved a business model that's similar to dropshipping. Orders would be placed online, and we would source the order from a list of partners. It gave products a chance to be bought worldwide, where locally they may have struggled. In all of these examples... An online component is or would have been a valuable asset to improving sales. And of course, if it's going to be online, then it stands to reason that there would be a source that you can acquire a product from, hence dropshipping. Now that dropshipping is a popular and effective economic model, the advantages are numerous. The seller doesn't need to invest in nearly as much overhead, and they only have to buy at cost that which has been sold. The seller can focus on creativity and branding. So while they're making a profit off the sales, they can be a true net good by sharing knowledge and bringing people together. In the course of a day, the stress that somebody can endure could result in thousands of sales versus the stress of trying to get somebody into your store to stay and to buy. I know it's not a completely fair comparison, but one way or another, if you're going to go under stress, you want it to be as worthwhile as possible, I think. I found this fascinating and eye-opening because I have and I will continue to make purchases through the usage of dropshipping. I already put together one episode of uh, 10 Things I Ordered Online and <laughs> give me two weeks, I'm going to have another 10. So 
Because I am doing a lot of research about this and I'm learning a lot about how all this works, uh, I was curious as to how this all got started. And if you are too, stick around because it's history time. The earliest record of dropshipping began in medieval times. Bloodthirsty kingdoms would wage war on each other to secure precious resources like spice. I am joking. I wish there was a record of it back in those days. I wish that for everything I research. The first stage in dropshipping, for real this time, is reported to take place between 1950 and 1960. I have a couple of different sources, and they narrowed it down to that point. Uh, it could have happened sooner, but there's a bit of a commercial blind spot between 1930 and 1945. Anyways, customers would receive a catalog, order their product by mail-in, and companies would either fulfill the orders in-house or outsource fulfillment. For record-keeping, if a company has their own fulfillment center, uh, that's not the definition of dropshipping. But it's important to know because dropshipping may not have happened without big companies with their own supply-building trust. Plus, either way, the advantages are the same. You save money by reducing the middleman. Now, I mentioned that orders were placed from what they saw in a catalog. At that time, there was no internet. Or at the very least, I mean, they might have been like, being developed in secret, but I have no idea. Uh, cataloging in this is essential. And so we're going to talk about that for a bit. Um, a catalog has two important roles. The first is to show a customer a wide array of products without the overhead of brick and mortar. And the second is for the catalog to be shared so you can exponentially increase exposure. In order for dropshipping to happen, there needed to be a foundation of trust between producer and consumer. Uh, before we could trust ordering online, we needed to trust ordering from a distance altogether. And sure enough, we arrive in medieval times, where bloodthirsty nations, while struggling for key resources, I'm joking, that was the last time, I promise. My research dates cataloging all the way back to Venice, 1495, after the printing press was invented. The publisher of the first catalog ever was Aldus Manutius, an Italian scholar and innovator. His goal was to sell Greek writings in their original form. His company, the Aldine Press, also renowned for the invention of italics, printed a catalog in order to let people know what books he was printing. Not that I could have done any better at the time, or even now, but the total books printed during his lifespan were 132. I assume that was amazing at the time. And to further that point, I also found that his innovations were so popular, it went on to be emulated outside of Greece and France, which were the only places he had any copyright protection. And by France, I just mean Paris. 525 years later, people are still emulating each other. So in that regard, all that really changed was the scale. Cataloging continued to be an important part of the growth of commerce. The next major innovation being seed companies 200 years later. And I thought, seed companies? You mean like capital investment? No, no, like, like, like seed companies, like people that sold seeds that you plant in the ground. To this day, catalogs and seed companies still go hand in hand. But the first instance can be found in 1667 from William Lucas, who distributed them to inform customers about his price and selection. There are a few other notable breakthroughs in the development of catalogs. Uh, Welsh Flannel of Wales in 1861 and Montgomery Ward and Company in 1895. But the key to making all of this happen is thanks to Benjamin Franklin in 1744. He was the first to accept payment via mail. Uh, before him, a catalog saved time and labor by selling people on the product, but they still had to go get it. 
Mr. Franklin, on the other hand, thought ahead, as he was known to do. Permit me to read the passage directly. To be sold for ready money only by Ben Franklin at the post office in Philadelphia on Wednesday, the 11th, 1744, at nine o'clock in the morning, and for dispatch, the lowest price is marked in each book. This sale to continue three weeks and no longer, and what then remains will be sold at an advanced price. Arnold Craig wasn't happy with me about that one. With ordering from afar set in place, we can head over to our starting point in 1960 with two major companies, both of whom can be credited for helping this new post-blind spot economic boom, Sears and J.C. Penney. It's worth pointing out that Sears and J.C. Penney deserve a lot of credit for the way they centralize the shopping experience in ways that are e- ubiquitous to us now. Sears was founded in 1893 and at the time only dealt watches. They didn't start opening retail locations until 1925. Prior to that point, they relied on cataloging. There's a long list of innovations they can be commended for. When other retail stores relied on dense urban centers for the natural foot traffic, Sears would target rural areas with large stores that sold a wide variety of products you might not see in the same place. I imagine a lot of uh, younger people kind of might not get to see a Sears, uh, but just as an example of what I would see when I walked into a Sears, um, in one section there were power drills, and then in the other part of the store there were luxury watches and perfumes and sprays. They really did want to appeal to as uh, many people as they could. Okay, so this next part, uh, my research does get a little bit muddled. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I have conflicting information from a few places. What came first? Outsourcing, uh, the fulfillment centers, and the usage of present stock. One source suggests that Sears and JCPenney were outsourcing catalog orders, but demand was so high, they needed to create a fulfillment center to meet with demand. Another tells a similar story, except they relied on their current inventory, uh, which was bad news since it would exhaust supply and customers were left browsing barren shelves. Either way, what I know to be true is that there was a need for a fulfillment center, uh, a term that you probably know now thanks to Amazon. In the same way that Sears got its start by buying product and reselling it to an untapped market, once they had become established names with their own physical space, New companies, such as CompuCard, got their start without needing products or places. They bought the product from the fulfillment center, which ships to the customer, and they earned their money through marking up the cost of the product and shipping. Similar to what we see today, where e-commerce platforms advertise to consumers likely to buy the product. CompuCard is credited as among the first companies to have performed the business model we know today as dropshipping. When we hit the 90s, this is where the internet was starting to take major precedence over the lives of people. And I grew up in the 90s, so I observed firsthand the slow but inevitable transition from reliant fully on the world around me to reliant on the internet. I also remember the Sears catalog from the 90s, and I can recall looking at the toy section in Sears catalog, and okay, all right, like I didn't, I didn't plan to bring this story up initially, but we're going to do this. So I, 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 I liked looking through the Sears catalog because it would help my parents figure out what to get me for Christmas. And they put some effort into the photography. You know, it's one thing to just see the action figures in a box at the store. Uh, It's another thing to see them on display. It adds legitimacy. Uh, There was this eight-piece Marvel toy set I remember seeing in the catalog, and I was super excited to get it for Christmas. 
Well, it arrives and well, you know, not like not unlike some of what I deal today with e-commerce, it's not what I expected. Uh, Spider-Man was half covered in symbiote and his leg bent forward because it was broken. Uh, Spider-Woman couldn't bend her arms because she had a spring that would let her uh, throw a web. Uh, the Hulk and the Thing both had spring-loaded arm swing attacks. Uh, Magneto and Doctor Doom were in it, even though I thought it was just a hero set. Iron Man's armor couldn't stick on. Uh, Captain America has a shield that he holds like a gun. Back then, there, there, there wasn't any way to check reviews. It still happens to be today, and I don't really have an excuse. I noticed a lot of cyclical patterns in this, and that was certainly one of them. Anyways, because we had already established trust in paying at a distance, uh, e-commerce uh, began to take shape in a few ways. We had established companies like Walmart and Sears set up their own online stores, uh, which was helpful in legitimizing the concept. We had what is known now as the dot-com bubble, as many internet companies such as Pets.com, which if you type in Pets.com right now, it'll take you to PetSmart. So that was pretty smart of them. You don't have to, ex don't ever excuse a pun of mine. These uh, internet companies would receive millions in funding to set up their virtual shops. The problem again was it went too well. So by the 2000s, most of these companies were deemed unprofitable and they shut down. And then the dot-com bubble bursts. And I can say from my perspective, I had no idea. Uh, for my family, a conservative family, none of us trusted paying for anything online anyways. So for us, we were just going to Sears. I, had, I ended up being the first to bite the bullet in the 2000s when I wanted to subscribe to World of Warcraft. It's not related to dropshipping, but that's, that's, that's what it took. From the dot-com burst, two websites that made it through to the other side and are thriving to this day are Amazon and eBay. Now, this is where things really start to come into clarity. Uh, with the infrastructure in place to sell on behalf of merchants, a great deal of collective trust was put into online purchasing. Uh, these platforms were ready to take off, and well, you know, clearly they did. Uh, what we didn't yet have was centralization in the online space. I was fairly active as an internet user, but I only visited sites based on my interests, uh, video games and flash cartoons. At the time, the social norm was to keep our relationship with the internet to an arm's length. People were reluctant to tell each other their name, let alone buy online. So the next step was for something to come along and create foot traffic that appeals to many different kinds of people. And that's when we get Facebook. I signed up for my account in 2007, and I, I thought I was being innovative, but most of my friends had beat me to it. 2007, incidentally, is the same time that Facebook allowed for ads. So... Leading up to Facebook, you had something like MySpace, which warmed people up to the idea of a web page that meshed real life with the internet and posed the internet as an alternative life. Uh, Facebook bridges the gap between generations. It's a lot easier to talk parents into a platform that other parents are using. And by the way, Google is important in all of this too, uh, but I'm pointing out Facebook because Google isn't known for keeping you connected to family and friends. Sellers now have a means to direct traffic through their own action and not having to rely on native traffic from Amazon or eBay. A manufacturing struggled for a long time to keep up with the upward mobility of this business model. It's one thing to know how many cars are going to be put on sale at a dealership. It's another to know how many people 
of the millions of potential customers might buy your product online. In the 2010s, AliExpress and Shopify enter the picture. And this is where dropshipping and e-commerce are ready to reach for their true potential. Uh, at that time, and even now, no manufacturing base is as big as China. I understand India might give them a run for their money, so we'll see. As for Shopify, with a manufacturing base ready to take on a global market, what's left is to give creativity back to the seller without causing massive losses. Where Aldous Manutius used his own catalog to promote his text, sellers on Shopify can set up their own online store to market their brand and create new communities for people to come together with a common interest. And now we've arrived in 2020, where the reliance on delivering goods is greater than ever. Luckily for us, we had time to build trust and understanding with e-commerce. And now for many of us, it's the only way we can buy anything, dropshipped or otherwise. Everything you can imagine is being delivered to your door. One moment, we're skeptical about ordering a pair of pants via check. Now anyone can set up a store and sell the pants themselves. Every time my dad was introduced to a new development in technology, he would tell the story about how the milkman would drive around dropping bottles off from house to house. I assume he also picked up the empties, but I, I, I never asked. I remarked sometime within the last year that it looks like we're coming back to that full circle, especially now that people are afraid to go to the grocery store at all. For as long as we've had products, we've had ways to promote them. What used to be a printed booklet sent to our mail is now a virtual catalog, where the images on display change with such rapidity that you can go through the magazine basically forever. Not that you should, I'm, I'm just saying that you can, you, can, you can be at it for a while. Well, that's the history for you. If I had to make a prediction, I have a good feeling that it's going to be around for a long time. Basically, I think as long as we still have money to spend, we will want to be ordering things online. Somebody like myself, I can't imagine what kind of life I would live uh, without the internet. I'm sure I would still be able to have one, but I definitely feel like I was put into the time and place that was best suited for what I can and can't do. Uh, but I want to know what you think. So you can write into us at podcast at debutify.com. If I missed any key element of this, you want to let us know. We'll be able to uh, address that. And if you want to make a prediction as to where you think we're going to go from here, I'd love to hear that too. So uh, don't hesitate to get in touch. You might have found this show on any number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. 